KYW Original Podcasts. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic in Philadelphia, subscribe to KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Coronavirus Pandemic from KYW In-Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. We've been taking a look at the idea of using human challenge trials to speed up development of a vaccine for coronavirus. There are many ethical considerations in doing these because people volunteer to be infected with a pathogen like the coronavirus. The idea is that by doing this, we'll get a vaccine faster. I've already talked to the Rutgers bioethicist who wrote an article proposing HCTs for a coronavirus vaccine. I've also talked to the founder of a website that's picked up the idea and is signing up potential volunteers. And I've talked to one of the volunteers, one of more than 24,000 people who have signed up on the website. You can find the first two podcasts on Human Challenge Trials at radio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. In this podcast, I called Dr. David Weiner to ask him what he thinks about this. Dr. Weiner heads the Vaccine and Immunotherapy Center at the Wistar Institute. He's also the founder of Innovio Pharmaceuticals. They're toward the head of the coronavirus vaccine pack. And I wondered if this was something he's considering and why or why not. Dr. Weiner, the reason I, I called you today is we want I want to talk about human challenge trials. And I was wondering what your opinion is on those. Should they be conducted in a, in a way, in order to speed up vaccine development? The human challenge trials are a very complex issue. And of course, they've been raised as an idea from, from some very prominent, famous scientists. And there are models where we have human challenges. Like, for example, we have human cha- vaccine challenges for malaria, but the model is very well defined and has a treatment that allows us to give to people who might get infected to prevent them from really suffering any serious malaria. And we have some other live challenge models like that. So we do have specific models, and those models are important for addressing certain considerations. I think the most important thing, though, is of all models, including this uh, one that's been proposed, is that conceptually the people that are volunteering should have a virus that can't cause disease or a risk mitigation to prevent them from getting sick. And I think that's where the controversy about this discussion revolves. So basically you're saying, from what I understand, you're saying because we've done these things in the past, but there have been treatments for those diseases. And you're saying because there's no treatment, that poses an ethical dilemma here? I believe that What would be very important in human trials, and then, I mean, I think we can also expand this issue to tie it to what's happening in vaccine development. So I think that it's very important to have a strategy in place that provides comfort that people who get challenged will not have an undue risk. And I think that would be the burden on people who want to develop this kind of challenge to really show that. And the original idea that was put forth was that younger people were at less risk. And I think less is a, is a general term, not a defined term. And we have seen that younger people, there are consequences to younger people, and they do have a lower mortality risk. 
but I think we should factor in all their risks, their risks for being some side effect or something like uh, we've seen the Kawasaki syndrome in children, et cetera. And it's not just children. So I think all of those risks need to be taken together and weighed. And then those by themselves also need to be weighed against what's happening in the general field. And I think uh, that's also important that at the same time. What do you mean, Wade, what's happening in the general field? Can you, can you expand upon that? Yeah, thank you for asking. I think that's very important. So when these were starting to be proposed, we had the mindset that vaccines were going to be developed and drugs are going to be developed in timeframes that we normally have. And there's a whole question about that, and I would love to get into that as well, because I think it's directly related to this issue. But as we can all see, like for our own trials, we were in the clinic in just about 10 weeks. And of course, there was another group that was in the clinic in just about eight weeks. Those are the fastest in history, really, development through the FDA ever. And those vaccines were selected for conceptual safety, not that they are safe, but they have features about them that allow us to move forward rapidly. And now several others, I think we have about eight in clinical trials, many from big pharma that have been accelerated in a way that we've never seen before. And so that, and also we're talking about very large trials starting very, very soon. Oxford is expanding, as you know, uh, Anovio has announced they're going to expand its efficacy and um, by the summer, Moderna, for just uh, three examples, I don't want to leave people out, but it, as you know, there's quite a number. And so one would also have to weigh that against how much one would gain if they're already going into efficacy. And I do want to point out the difference in those trials is that we're not doing small trials. Like in the old way of developing vaccines, the old way, I don't know if that's the right way to say it exactly, but the way we develop vaccines is a very step-by-step process. People think things are being dropped out, but what's being dropped out is the long delays and stuff, but we're increasing the numbers quite large. For example, the trials people are talking about now are thousands of people. Well, that is the way to get to safety soon as well, not just efficacy. That's what we normally do, but it takes years to do that we're doing in a compressed period of time. So those are being addressed as well. And so that has to be now reweighed to me versus whatever the benefits and risks are of challenge has been proposed by these other groups. That was one of my biggest questions because when I talk to, <clears throat> pardon me, some of the groups who are advocating for this, it basically replaces, from what I understand, part of phase three. And the question I had was, isn't part of phase three, isn't longevity part of the importance of phase three and that you are looking at the safety of it long term as opposed to just over maybe uh, six weeks? So I think that's very important what you said. It also does replace and does not replace. It does replace a part or I wouldn't even say replace. I don't think that's the right word the way it's being used, not by you, but in general here. But it does not address the safety. It does not address field trials at all. There have been quite a number. Let's just take that. For example, I gave you the example of the malaria vaccine. So there have been malaria vaccines that have been down-selected based on that human trial model that then in the field had, I believe, zero or just about 10% or extremely low efficacy. So in fact, that argument is a problem as well. So, and, uh, yeah. But there is another 
issue and let's try to give a scientific reason for why that might be. Well, there, there could be a hundred of them, but one is, of course, we have made a laboratory mimic of the way people might get infected in the field, not the way they really do. So the real efficacy trials that are when real uncontrolled, not uncontrolled because it's still in a trial controlled, everything is still being partially controlled, but in a field trial setting, which is a very high bar, may or may not reflect a laboratory-based challenge, as I just gave you the example of malaria. So the way supporters say this would happen is they would have to develop a level of a dosage of actually the virus, right, that would cause infection, but not severe, severe infection. And their argument is that if you take the smaller group of people you know they're infected, as opposed to if you're taking a larger number of people who are out in the community, they're still practicing, you know, mitigation efforts. They're still trying not to get infected. And so they're saying, if you deliberately infect these people, that you will have a much greater, I guess, a faster understanding as to whether or not the vaccine works. So I think there is, uh, as you have mentioned, there's a burden to make sure you come up with a challenge that's the right take. And of course, that challenge, whether you give it as an aerosol spray to a person, you know, that's another thing. The transmission rate in the field is one person to, you know, what is it, two to 2.5 or something, and it, it's that number we're debating. But what you're talking about here is every single person that you challenge is going to get infected. And so you've changed something just by doing that. So I think that's another um, conundrum for this. But I would still say I would want some type of assurance that it would be very, you're not going to put these people at risk because they're volunteering, because that is a very important part, I think, of the way we should approach this. And I think they have to include how much benefit there really is going to be, which I think is a really I also want to say I think it's a really important effort and an extremely important discussion and a very important debate, but it must be put in context of the speed with which everything's happening around. If we are going to have 10,000 to 20,000 in this study and 10,000 to 20,000 in the next study and the next by the fall, which is something that's never happened before, I am not sure those kind of speed and mathematics were calculated in the risk-benefit And they should include that in the way we go forward and uh, figure how to do that. Yeah, that that was one of the things we we talked about, how much time you would gain. Because when I talked to Josh Morrison from One Day Sooner, they were even looking at maybe you would only gain a month. But they used some of the data to extrapolate from that and say you could save thousands of lives just in that month. Do you agree with that? Is that is that reasonable, a reasonable calculation? I don't know what the assumption was based on, but that is only a reasonable calculation if they include the manufacturing, the availability of the vaccine. And the second part, I do not believe they addressed, which is the one that we have challenge models in humans, and they have not always predicted what happens in the field. And if that were to happen, you would delay vaccine. So I have, I'm just I'm curious. I did ask Josh if he had spoken to you because I, I know they spoke out. They have, uh, reached out to um a few vaccine developers. And so have you have you had conversations with them about this? Have they asked you to do these trials? No. And uh, no, Are we okay. you know, we're I mean, I think I want to commend them. For, I think it's very important. 
and I'm glad they're doing it, and I hope they continue to work through and debate these different issues. I think um, this is unprecedented in the speed with which groups are moving forward, and it's uh, very aspirational how fast groups are moving, as well as increasing the number to address safety, which is quite extraordinary and also is unprecedented. And so those are a lot of moving parts that need to be figured into any specific trial like this. And so as those can all be addressed, including the safety. So for example, I would say something that would make things change the equation a little bit is if one of these many drug studies are going to start to show a real dramatic effect in preventing progression, right? So we have some early data on remdesivir, but it's unclear, you know, it's not a game changer yet, but it may be the way they retest it. And we have a lot of different immune therapies. And so that is the case for some of these other challenges. And then then it's a different proposition. But I still think it would be interesting to hear the debate around, well, human challenge models have not predicted with anywhere near 100% that the vaccine works in the field, which is what we are talking about. Right. And so how do you include that as a plus or minus in whether you gain time or lose time because now you follow a false lead? How many vaccines do fail in phase three? Vaccines do fail in phase three. That is true. But one of the interesting things about vaccines are, and that is a little different here, but not entirely different. And that's a very important discussion is vaccines tend to have a better success rate than most other things we develop. And the reason is phase threes are usually there is time and there's also a lot of studies that lead to the final design and trial of the phase three. So there's a lot of risk mitigation strategies to make sure that phase three is going to work. uh, You know, uh, it has the best chances and is, and has met a whole bunch of endpoints. So, What's happening in this case is there's, as part of Warp Speed, for example, there's animal work and and a lot of the other groups already, and we have published some early animal work, and you saw the monkey work also came out this week showing the protective nature in that model. And so what's also very different is we're getting that data, this kind of preclinical data, in an inordinately fast time. I mean, these papers are flying off the, you know, the computer's and being downloaded even before they're accepted so everybody gets dissemination. And so we're getting information that's helping guide the design as well as the epidemiology on a much faster way than ever before. And networks are cross-helping and different countries are cross-participating in everybody's trials. And, you know, you have the U.S. government, of course, different agencies and CEPI, Film on the Gates and the Rest, many, many groups all putting in, giving guidance. And so those are a lot of the risk mitigation that normally take decades being done all at once, sort of more global level. And so those are helping to speed up as well. So what? Um, how close are we to the finish line here? Well, I think I the finish line, if you ask how close are we to being in larger FC trials, I believe it's pretty clear we will start to see FC trials from several of the leading groups, you know, this summer, which is very soon this summer. Yeah. And that's unprecedented. And I also think we'll see 
even expanded trials as we go into the fall and more groups coming in, the top groups. And therefore, those can likely, if they are effective, start to show us signals. But then we have the next problem, which I think is the one of the bigger, biggest problems besides that. And these vaccines in animals are somewhat encouraging, but we've had other encouraging animal models in the past for other vaccines that have been problematic. But I still am in the camp uh, now that there has been a lot of progress along the lines of being able to have a positive outcome in some of these trials. And then we'll have to really have them produced in time to get the first doses out. And it's not a race in that we don't need the best one at all. A great example would be Sox versus Sabin's polio vaccine. Sabin's vaccine is much more effective than Sox vaccine. Sabin's vaccine is closer to 95% or something efficacy, whereas Sox vaccine, the live one, was only about 70% effective. But 70% because of its ability to be delivered and, it, and its time frame, eliminated from most measurements the risk of polio in North America. And so we don't need the best. We need enough and several to get out there that we can start vaccinating people because then you get herd immunity and you start to suffocate the virus, a very appropriate thing to do to this virus, take away its way to replicate itself, which is us, from as many different angles as possible. And so we could have many different vaccines because then they won't compete with each other for production and manufacturing and distribution. And that would get the most to people in the shortest period of time. And also they might be for very different populations, right? We have much more elderly nowadays. They might need particularly a different kind of slightly different immune response than infants and young people have enormously great immune responses. And, and some might be respond better to the Oxford one, then another one. The DNA might be better in, in the most at-risk type of populations, for example, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what we really want. We want a spectrum that crossed the finish line to then be able to have early manufacturing, even though we wouldn't, wouldn't have billions at first, but we'd have a lot and we would be able to protect, start getting as much of this out to people starting in a rollout fashion that addresses the right population as soon as possible. And so go back to your question, I think we could start seeing early efficacy signals towards the second part of this year. And then, of course, with the different strategies people are talking about and how the government might use emergency use, use authorization, that those are interesting strategies to get product out there sooner. Yeah. And I think but the, the issue that, of course, has been raised by scientists all along the way, it goes really goes back to safety. And, you know, there's this push to get it out there as quickly as possible for obvious reasons. But, you know, should we feel comfortable? You, you spoke about having the, the safety that 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 phase of the trial, if I understood you correctly, you've managed to compress that. And you've touched on that, I believe, with you said the sharing of information and things like that. So should the general public, should we be confident, should we be comfortable that when these vaccines, because they're being produced really so rapidly, considering that they are truly safe? I think that's a very important question. And I'd also say it's time for us to start putting numbers on what people are saying when they use this word truly safe. That's a number. Is it one out of a million? Is it one out of 10 million? And there's also a risk of the virus. And so there are numbers assigned that we, you know, that 
for each, you know, as we study each vaccine of safety. And we take things, you know, the FDA, not we, the FDA has taken vaccines for children that cause as few as 14 to 20 ad- significant adverse events out of the 4 million entire birth cohort. That's a very large number. And they, dis- and they discover that because we monitor vaccine safety so closely, even after licensure. And so the numbers are really important. So I think that's important that to make all of us now are starting to know and experience relatives and stuff that are at risk and our whole uh, way of life. And so the math of all, what is that risk? So I'm saying, I believe through these strategies, people are going to increase the numbers of the trial to have safety, just like what we, we enjoy now with our vaccines. And I think when they bring up that safety argument, which I think is a very important argument, I'm completely, of course, behind that. I think we also have to put what is the number we normally expect for safety with any particular vaccine? And what is the number that we accept in an older population or the rest of that? What are the guidelines? And are we going? And I think we're going to all try to meet those same guidelines. I don't think what anyone is saying is we're going to expect a million people to be damaged by the vaccine. I want to be clear. No one is. That's not what anyone's goal is. Dr. Weiner, thank you so much for talking with us yet again. It is always a fascinating conversation with you. I really appreciate it. Good luck. It's a very important topic, and thank you for doing it. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth Coronavirus. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic, or if you just want to know more than what you're hearing on the news right now, if you want to go a little deeper, if you want to know how this could change your life or your routine, then subscribe to the KYW In-Depth podcast. Search for KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Carol McKenzie, and we'll have another episode out soon.